Anyways, uh, welcome. Good morning, church. Uh, Open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. As the uh, video humorously illustrated, we are in week five of our foolproof series, The Way of Wisdom, a study of the book of Proverbs that we're doing all summer long. Each week we're pondering in the book of Proverbs how to choose the way of wisdom over folly as we walk in the fear of the Lord as we talked about in those first two weeks. So each week we're tackling a key theme or a major theme in the book that's super relevant to our lives. We've talked about anger and correction, and this morning we're talking about marriage. And the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about love, sexuality, adultery, husbands and wives. And if you've been reading along with us over this past month, hopefully you've taken that opportunity to read a proverb each day that matches the day of the month. You've likely noticed that there's a lot to say about about this topic. And tis the season to be married. Actually, many of us are attending weddings. There's a lot of weddings going on this summer. I've had the privilege of doing a couple weddings already as the pastor, and I'm doing another one in a couple week, a couple weeks for a young couple in our church. We all love a good wedding and, and we all love a good love story, don't we? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Some of you are like, eh, I don't know. All right, turn to the person next to you and say your favorite love story of all time. Favorite love story of all time. Like, could be a movie or a book, doesn't matter. Fairy tale, Romeo and Juliet. Cinderella, Prince Charming, West Side Story, Beauty and the Beast. Some of your men are like, I hate love stories. Unless it's Han Solo's and Princess Leia and Star Wars. Or Rocky and Adrian, right? My personal favorite is the Princess Bride, Mowage. Mowage is what brings us together today. I just had to use that because that's exactly what we're talking about. All right, so like the Princess Bride says, marriage is what brings us together today. And if you have your bulletins, you can take them out and follow along with us. we got a lot to cover. We're going to look at three things that the Proverbs teach us about marriage. Uh, and then also, if we have some time at the end, we'll look at some practical stuff. So three things, the mystery of marriage, the problem of marriage, and the solution for marriage. The mystery, the problem, and the solution. And at the end, we'll give some practical advice. Now, just a quick disclaimer, for those of you that aren't married, maybe you're too young to get married yet, and that's a good thing, or maybe you're divorced, or maybe uh, you're a widow or a widower, either way, don't turn your brain off and think this message has nothing to do with me. If you intend to get married someday, you should definitely listen, but also, marriage itself has immense meaning in the Bible, and has so much to teach us about the heart of God. So, Don't turn your brain off, even if you're not married. Let's listen first to the mystery of marriage. Are you in Proverbs 30 yet? Everybody there? Proverbs 30, starting in verse 18. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. Now, anytime in the Proverbs that you see this kind of list, like there are three things and then four, or there's six things and then seven, usually it's a poetic device in Hebrew poetry that, that is trying to emphasize the final one in the list. So when it says there's three and then four, the fourth one is the most important, or there's six and then seven, the seventh one is kind of 
supported by all the rest, and that's true in this. And you see that the, the writer is saying that there's three other amazing things that all remind me of this fourth. How does an eagle glide in the sky and soar around? It looks like it's putting in no effort. It's amazing. It's majestic. We were at Hawking Hills this past week, and we saw these birds flying, and it was just amazing to watch them fly like this, these massive creatures floating like effortless. Or how does a snake slither along the rock with no arms or legs, and yet it moves so fast it can towards its body. It's amazing. It defies the laws of physics, it seems. Or how does a ship move on the high seas, even if the wind is blowing directly at it? The wind and the sails, it uses the the wind just right and the rudder to, to kind of move through. How does it do it? It's mysterious. And all of that leads him to ponder, how does a man meet a woman? When the sparks fly, and love is in the air, and everybody sees it happening, It's the old Bambi movie, Twitterpated, right? Everybody's just like, whoa, they love each other. What is going on here? It's a mystery. How do we fall in love like this? Now, have you ever stopped to think, why did God create romance? Why? Why did God create romance? Why did God create us as human beings uniquely as far as we know, other than any other creature, that fall in love? Why did God create marriage in the first place? Why did he create us with this capacity to love other people? Why do we have attraction and sexual desire and orientation? Why do we love a good love story and happily ever after and we keep telling them over and over and over and watching them and reading them? Why do we cheer when a groom kisses the bride? Why do women, why do girls want to have that Prince Charming sweep them off their feet or boys want to be that knight in shining, shining armor to rescue the damsel in distress? Why Why does God care so much about this that he would create an institution called marriage, one one man, one woman for a lifetime? Why did he do this? What does it mean? It's a mystery. And the answer is actually really simple. And Paul gives us the answer in Ephesians 4. This is what he says. And he agrees that it's a mystery. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's talking about marriage. This is a profound mystery. He agrees with Proverbs 30. But I am talking about Christ and the church. Marriage itself is a mystery. Why does it happen? Why does it exist? But this mystery is pointing to something greater. The mystery of marriage, love, sex, and romance is pointing to something else, namely Christ and his church. There is a greater love story going on of cosmic proportions. In fact, that's a great way to summarize the Christian faith, a galactic romance. Probably never thought about your faith like that, but it is a galactic romance. Hmm. And this mystery is all over the Bible. You might think, Matt, have you watched a bunch of love movies recently? No. I haven't. In fact, this idea of galactic romance is all over the Bible. Let me show you. And if you want to just write down these references, you can read them later. One of the coolest interactions is when Jesus talks to the Pharisees and he describes himself in a unique way. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the, here's the word, bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. 
Now, there's a lot more to this story than we have time to unpack, fasting and what that is and Jesus' brilliant answer. But what I want you to see is how Jesus speaks of himself. He calls himself the bridegroom. The reason my disciples don't fast is because I, the bridegroom, am here, and one day I will be gone, and then they will fast. Now, that term bridegroom, we don't really use that phrase. We just call it a groom nowadays. But that term bridegroom might not mean a lot to you because you're not an ancient first century Jewish person. But that that term was loaded with meaning in the Hebrew scriptures, the idea of bridegroom. It would be like if we traveled back in time to 2019, three years ago, and I said the term social distancing, and you would be like, what? Social distancing? How did that doesn't even work. That's a logical fallacy. That doesn't make sense. But now, three years later, all of us will be like, oh yeah, I know what that means because we have a shared history with that term. We all know and we've seen it used. In the same way, when a Jewish person heard Jesus saying, I am the bridegroom, all these sparks were flying off in their head. Wait a second. Does he mean what I think he means? Yes, he does actually. When Jesus said, I am the bridegroom, it would have taken any ancient reader back to the very beginning In fact, back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1, first verse in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there's a ton in this verse about the beginning of space and time and matter and all of existence and how God created all of that, but what I want you to see, and I've highlighted it, is the word for heavens and the word for earth. The word for heavens is the Hebrew word shamayim, which is a masculine word, noun, and the word for earth is eretz, which is a feminine word. So in the very first verse of the Bible, you have a a couple, heaven and earth, that are meant for each other. More on that later. And then if you skipped ahead, just 26 verses, then God creates mankind in his image. There's a second couple that's made in the image of God, male and female, and they are meant for each other. They too belong together, and they are married in chapter 2, and their marriage becomes a foretaste or a foreshadowing of what the rest of the Bible story is about, the inevitable marriage of heaven and earth, this couple. And as the Old Testament unfolds, God describes himself. What comes to your mind when you think of God? Some people would say, well, God is kind of this superpower in the sky, and all the, must people, all the people must submit to him or die. But, but God doesn't use those words to describe himself in the Bible. In fact, he describes himself quite differently. Listen to how Isaiah describes it. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of the earth. He calls himself a husband. Or as Isaiah 62, 5 says, as a young man marries a young woman, so, your, so will your builder marry you. And a, there's the word, bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. So God is describing himself as this lover longing for a bride, a people. And in fact, there's an entire book of the Bible that is written for this purpose, the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea, God told Hosea to marry a prostitute to demonstrate how God is a loving husband and his wife, the Israelites, continue to be unfaithful to him. This is what he says in Hosea chapter 2. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. 
You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. I will betroth you, which means engage. I will marry you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. You hear this desire in God to marry and be united in intimacy with his people. And then in Ezekiel 16, perhaps the most graphic language, I'm just going to give you the PG version of it, Ezekiel 16, 8. You can read the rest of the account later of God describing his relationship. He says, I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. So all throughout the Old Testament, it uses this language of a bridegroom and a bride, God loving his people. That's why he says that I will be your God and you will be my people. You are mine and I am yours. We are married to one another. And so when Jesus uses this term bridegroom in the New Testament, all those sparks will go off and Paul got it too because he says in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And listen to this language of a wedding dress to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless like a white wedding dress on her wedding day. And as the Bible began with a couple in Genesis 1, it ends with a wedding, Revelation 19. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. The entire Bible is a love story. So in summary, what is the mystery of marriage? What is it? Marriage is a good gift that points to a greater story. It is a good gift from God, like the Proverbs say below, that points to a greater story. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Houses and wells are inherited from parents, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. So God has given us this institution, this precious gift of marriage as a good gift to enjoy. But like all of God's gifts, they're meant to point to something greater, namely the love story of God and his people, of Jesus Christ purchasing his bride by dying for them and raising again, saving them and bringing them into a relationship with him by faith. Friend, the reason that you have a desire to be loved and the reason that you have sexual desires today for fulfillment is because there is a much greater and deeper desire in you to be loved and known by God and to love him in return. That is why marriage exists. That is why you have sexual orientation. That is why you have these desires because God made you for himself. Now here's the problem. That's the mystery. That's what marriage is about. That's why God created it. But the problem is when a good thing that God gives us becomes the ultimate thing in our lives, it destroys us. When we take a good gift, like marriage or anything else for that matter, and we make it the ultimate thing in our lives, we actually begin to destroy it and be destroyed by it. If you're in Proverbs still, flip over to Proverbs 6. 
Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6 and 7 are probably the most scathing rebukes of the problem of marriage in the entire book. What happens when marriage goes wrong? When the good thing that God gives us becomes the ultimate thing in our life, it's a very, very bad thing. And this is perhaps one of the greatest problems in our culture today. There are many, but this is maybe the most important one. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, we've taken our sexuality, our very desire for sexual fulfillment, our desire for love and intimacy, and we've elevated it to the ultimate purpose of our lives. We've made it our idol, we've made it our God, and it's making us crazy. What does it mean to make something the ultimate thing in your life? I'll tell you what it means. Anything that you and I say, if I have that, then I will feel like my life has meaning. If I have this, then I'll know I'm valuable. Then I'll feel secure and significant. If I have this, then I have identity and I know who I really am. And what we are doing in these moments is that we're looking for something or someone to give us what only God can give us. So we'll say things like this. If I have this relationship, I'll be happy. If I don't, I'll never be happy. Or if I have this gender identity or this sexual orientation, then I'll have meaning. If my body is beautiful and others desire me, then I can be happy, secure, and saved. You see? Your sexuality or your gender identity, your looks, your relationship has become your God. It has become your functional savior that you were looking to this thing or this person to give you ultimate fulfillment, security, and meaning and joy in life. And what actually happens is that this makes you a less loving person because you become consumed with this desire. You need it so badly. I have to look beautiful enough or I have to have my sexual desires fulfilled or I have to have this that you're willing to cross any boundaries and break any rules, uh, even those that you know aren't right, simply because you have to have this in order to be happy. This is what happens when it becomes the ultimate thing in your life. And so you may leave a spouse behind if they aren't making you happy. Maybe you'll hate your family if they disagree with your sexual decisions. You may look at pornography in secret because you have to have this fulfillment and it's easier than pursuing a relationship with your spouse or anybody else for that matter. You'll live together before you're married because you gotta make sure this works out and you can't really trust God with that. You may obsess over your looks and spend hours in the mirror or on a scale. And all you're doing is pursuing this good gift that God has given you as the ultimate thing in your life, and you're actually walking down the way to destruction and foolishness. And Proverbs has a lot to say in warning us about this, this problem. Look with me at Proverbs 6, verse 27. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? Obviously not. So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. This idea of adultery and lust creates a dumpster fire in your life and for those around you. It only leads to destruction, even though it promises to be life-giving. Skip over to the next chapter, Proverbs 7, verse 24 through 27. 
Now then, my sons, Solomon says, listen to me, pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her. He's talking about the adulterous woman. Don't let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. What Solomon is warning his son is to say, seeking this kind of pleasure outside of God's design always ends in destruction. It may promise you joy in life. It may promise you that if you just have this, that you'll be truly happy, but it always ends in your destruction, in the destruction of relationships and joy and peace. And before you think this is just a man problem, Proverbs has stuff to say to the ladies too. A wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a disgraceful wife is like decay in his bones. Unfaithfulness from a wife is like decay on a husband's bones and rots away at the family. Unfaithfulness causes so much destruction, no matter who the spouse is, for spouses and kids. And I know several of you in this room have been rocked by divorce or unfaithfulness in your past from your parents, from your spouse, perhaps even from yourself, and you know the pain that it causes, and decay is actually a really good word because it just rots away at your soul. Proverbs 31.30, there's certainly a positive in this verse, but here's the negative. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. More on that in a moment. But look at what a young woman does if she's seeking after charm. I just want to be loved. I want to be charmed and I want to have beauty, but it's fleeting. And a young woman who pursues all of these things walks herself into a deception and she brings that decay into her marriage and she obsesses over her body image and she can never be happy with what she looks like, and she brings that into her husband's life. At the heart of all of our brokenness, in all of our relationships, in the miserable marriages that some of us struggle with, or even in the minor marital tensions, in our divorces, in our body image issues, in our identity confusion and sexual orientation, in our pornography addictions, at the heart of all of that is that this good gift of our sexuality, this gift of romance and love and marriage has become the ultimate thing in our lives. Our own quest for romance and sexual fulfillment has become the very God that we worship. And as Romans 1 says, we've exchanged the glory of God for images in the form of mankind and we've worshiped the creature rather than the creator. This is the problem. This is the problem. When we walk down this road of adultery, when this good gift from God becomes the ultimate thing in our lives, it destroys us. So what's the solution to marriage? How do we get out of this mess? And Proverbs 31.30 gives us a little bit of the hint. It says the fear of the Lord to be praised. The solution ultimately is to keep the greater story in mind. We worshiped our way into this by worshiping this thing, and we're going to worship our way out of this by worshiping God instead. That's the only way through. Marriage is a good gift. Our sexuality is a good thing that God has given us to enjoy, but it must be kept in the context of the greater story of God's love for us in Christ. This is what Sam Albury says in his book, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? He says, we're thinking of sex both too much and too little. Too much because we're tempted to find our deepest fulfillment in sexual intimacy, and too little 
because we are missing what our deepest sexual and romantic yearnings are meant to be pointing us to. Our sexuality as human beings is meant to speak to us of the greater truth, deeper desire, and closer relationship. God cares who we sleep with because he cares who we spend eternity with, and he wants us to know him and experience his ultimate love forever. Friends, only when you keep Christ at the center of your existence, this is one of our core values here, that Jesus is central. Only when you keep Jesus at the center of your life and by result at the center of your marriage, at the center of your pursuit of love and romance, only when you understand his love for you will your sexuality and your marriage be rightly ordered, appreciated, and enjoyed. So let me tell you the love story that your soul has always longed to hear. We all love a good love story, so let me tell it to you. In the beginning, God, the lover and bridegroom, created us as human beings to be with him. He desired to share his love with us so that we could enjoy him forever, Genesis 1 and 2. But we as humanity rejected that and sinned against him, Genesis 3. Rejected his good design, rejected his love, and like a cheating spouse, the book of Hosea, we abandoned our lover and chased after other gods, Romans 1. And those very lovers that we chased after enslaved us and cursed us, Romans 6 and 7. They destroyed us. We were kept in captivity because like, and we became like dead men, miserable and hopeless, Ephesians 2. Yet this bridegroom, out of immense love for us, took on flesh, John 1. He became one of us to win us back. He came to earth, lived among us, lived perfectly for us, Hebrews 2, and sacrificed himself, slaying the very dragons that enslaved us, sin. Satan and death, Colossians 2. And in his death, he set us free and rose again to offer us new life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And not just any kind of life, but a life with him, a marriage to the king, the bridegroom himself, God, Jesus Christ, John 10, 10. And through faith in him, Ephesians 2, we are joined to an eternal union with Christ himself. We are pledged to him, and he is pledged to us, Isaiah 43, John 15. What is ours, our sin and our shame, becomes his. And what is his, his righteousness and life becomes ours, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And we get a new name now at the altar. We change our name and we are baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, into a new family and a new identity. And the best is yet to come, that the final ceremony and the party is coming. The groom has gone ahead of us, John 14, to prepare a way. And he is making us spotless and white, Ephesians 5. And he is sanctifying us by the word and spirit, Titus 2, so that we would be pure and spotless and we await our future wedding reception with him, John 17, Revelation 19 through 22. This is the love story that your soul longs for and until you get that, you'll always be lovesick. Amen. Amen. Until our souls understand the love story of God, we will always be lovesick desperate, destroying ourselves with this good gift that God meant to point us to himself. So the mystery of marriage is that a good gift points to a greater story. And the problem is we take this good thing and we make it the ultimate thing in our life 
and it destroys us and others around us. But the solution is to come back to our bridegroom, the lover of our souls, to keep that love story in our hearts. And when you do that, you are ready to get practical. So with the last few minutes, I want to give you some practical stuff, how to foolproof your marriage. Number one, out of love for and from Christ, stay faithful to your spouse. Out of love for and from Christ, stay faithful to your spouse. John Piper says that love is the overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. The only way that we can be faithful to our spouse is if we have the faithful love of Christ flowing in and through us. And Proverbs 20 magnifies the value of faithfulness. Many claim to have unfailing love, but a faithful person who can find. The righteous lead blameless lives. Blessed are their children after them. To find a faithful spouse is one of the greatest greatest assets you receive in your life. If I were to ask you, what are the assets in your life? You might immediately think your house, the things you own, and I would say to you, no, your greatest asset is your faithful spouse. And that's the greatest gift that you can give to your family is to be faithful to your spouse for your children's sake and for your lover's sake. No one in our culture champions faithfulness, and yet everyone in our culture wants a faithful lover. I remember we were talking a couple weeks ago in team teaching about this illustration of faithfulness and how do you stay faithful? And uh, Pastor Matt brought up the illustration of Lou Holtz. Lou Holtz was a famous college coach at Notre Dame. Blech. I'm a Michigan fan. <laughs> he was a famous coach at Notre Dame and also a famous college broadcaster, and he talked like this with a nice little lisp, right? And uh, he was asked on a broadcast one time, because he had been married to his wife for 58 years, and they asked him one day, Lou, how do you do it? How do you and Beth, how did you stay married for all these years? And I just loved his simple answer. He said, well, we said from day one that we're going to take the D word off the table. And we're not going to get divorced. We're just going to take the D word off the table. And I'll tell you what, when you take the D word off the table, we had a choice. We'll either be miserable for the rest of our lives, or we'll figure out how to be married together. That was what he said. I love that, right? Figuring out how to love one another and be faithful to each other. Church, what if we could be a people that took the D word off the table? Now, I don't mean to say here that there are never grounds for divorce, particularly when there's abuse. But Jesus was clear that divorce was given because of the hardness of our hearts, not because it was good. And if you have ever been divorced, you know what I'm talking about. But remember, God's mercy and grace is sufficient to those of you who have been wounded by divorce. Christ has already paid for that, whether you chose it or not. The sin of your past is covered. So live faithful now. Whether you're single or whether you're remarried, live faithful in the current state you are in. That's what 1 Corinthians 7 says. And if you're unmarried, either you're divorced or you're a young person who isn't married yet, you stay faithful to your spouse now. Out of God's love flowing in and through you, say no to sexual sin in all of its forms, whether that be physical intimacy or digital intimacy. Number two, choose your spouse daily. Choose your spouse daily. One of my favorite Proverbs about marriage, Proverbs 5. 
May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? I love this fatherly advice. Son, choose and be satisfied with your spouse. The great Puritan writer Henry Smith, Wyatt Blosser and I were talking about this a week or two ago. He said it this way, choose your love and then love your choice. Choose your love and then love the one you chose for life. Men, choose your wife. Don't let your eyes wander. If you're mired in sexual lust, confess it. Bring it into the light and repent. In a room this size, there are probably some of you men that are addicted to pornography and no one knows it. And if that's you, brothers, choose your wife, not a screen. Choose your wife, repent, confess it, get accountability and brothers in your life that can bring that word to you and encourage you. Your wife is more valuable and your marriage is more valuable than that. Ladies, choose your husband. Don't let your heart be drawn to another man or what you wished you had in a husband as you see other men around you. Choose your husband. Teenagers, young people, unmarried, don't compromise on your standards. Ladies, particularly teenage girls or young, young, young ladies, if a man is asking you to send inappropriate photos to him, break up with him yesterday. He's not really choosing you. He's choosing himself. And men, young men, study Ephesians 5. Learn how to love your spouse or your future spouse like Christ sacrificially loves the church. And that will keep you from asking for things that you never should ask for. Number three, emphasize giving, not getting. Emphasize giving, not getting. One of the biggest lies in our culture today is that marriage and sexuality is about getting. It's about my needs. I need to be satisfied. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Marriage is about giving. 1 Corinthians 7, 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. A great marriage, what makes a great marriage, of which sexuality is just one part of it, is when a husband and a wife give themselves wholly to one another. And as Christians, we can and should have the best marriages and the best sex lives because our goal is not to please ourselves, but to give ourselves to each other. And when both husband and wife do this, we get a glimpse of God's goodness. Listen to Tim and Kathy Keller in their book, The Meaning of Marriage. Excellent book. You should read it. It's a phenomenal resource. This is what they say about what it means to fall in love. If you're not married yet, get this vision for why you should get married. This is why you should get married. Within the Christian vision of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and to get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. That's so good. 
That's what marriage is about. That's why, we, that's why we get married. That's why we love our spouse. I want to be a part of my wife becoming the woman of God that she was called to be. I want to see her become more and more like Jesus. That excites me. And that we could walk each other into the throne room of God and say, I always knew you could be like this. Giving ourselves to each other for that purpose. Number four, communicate well. Communicate well. Learn to listen and speak the truth in love. As we'll see later this summer, the tongue has the power of life and death. And with it, we can give life to our spouse, but also we can destroy them. And the Proverbs have a ton to say about our communication and marriage. Here's just a sample. Proverbs 19. A quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping of a leaky roof. Oh, that's harsh. That word quarrelsome there has this idea of contentious, always contending and striving for your own opinion and way, always making sure that you have the last word, always making sure you're right. And to live with someone like that is miserable. Proverbs 21.9, better to live on a corner of the roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. A quarrelsome wife is like the dripping of a leaky roof and a rainstorm. Restraining her is like restraining the wind or grasping oil with the hand. Okay, we get it. Sheesh. All right. This proverb isn't saying that you should ditch your wife if she's nagging you, but it's, re- it's reminding us of how miserable it is to be married to someone who is always believing they are right and always striving for their own way. Not giving, but being selfish. Now, there are proverbs that talk about a quarrelsome person, so it's not just the wife that he's talking about here. Certainly men have this problem too, but I wonder if the reason why he says it so much about women, just like he says so much about adultery to men, is perhaps there is a unique struggle that women have in this particular area of quarreling. Just pray about that. I don't know that for sure. That's just a thought. Why so many times does God mention that? But just in case you think that men get off the hook, here's a gender-neutral quarreling verse. As charcoal to embers and as wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome person for kindling strife. The truth is we all like to be right and we all open our mouths too soon. Instead, how do you communicate well? Peter gives us some advice. One of the great chapters on marriage in the Bible, 1 Peter 3 Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the glorious, uh, the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. In other words, humble yourself, listen to your wife, or God won't listen to you. That's kind of important, right? Understand your wife, listen to her, be humble with her. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Wives, instead of nagging them to your own opinion, win them over through your love and generosity and your character, particularly if they're not a believer. Now, there's way more practical proverbial tips I could give you, but that's, we'll stop there with four just for sake of time. This is a message I wish we could do Q&A afterwards because there's so much kind of nuance and in, in give and take and talking through how do you do this well. But I think a fitting way to close this morning is to celebrate communion. And I think that's so beautiful because we've looked at so far this morning the mystery of marriage, that it's a good thing telling a greater story. But the problem is when we make our own good thing of marriage the ultimate thing in our lives, but the solution is to remind ourselves of that greater story.